0: according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I need to work out a new system of hand signals with my son <laughs> for, the, for the recording. He gives me a thumbs up when, uh, when we're recording and we're ready to start speaking. And he always gives me the thumbs up while he after he has the computer recording the m p three and after the tape deck is recording the cassette tape because we record the cassette tape and the m p three and the computer simultaneously but here lately, prior to giving me the thumbs up, he actually has started to hold his thumb like this like the old roman empire if if you know he could go down maybe if I was going to get thrown to the lions or something but each time, though, he's faithfully gone with the up position, I've been okay. But anyway, <laughs> it gave me a chuckle as I was waiting for the tape to start this morning. Well, no danger of getting thrown to the lions, but uh, we do have danger of wasting this hour and not understanding what he's speaking to us if we proceed on the basis of carnality. So let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together and receive instruction. And so, Father, we ask for this time now set before us that we can redeem this time for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. Turn to Luke chapter 1 as we get started this morning. Luke chapter 1, the birth of John the Baptist and his father's song, verses 57 through 80. Last week we introduced Zacharias in terms of his obedience, and we're going to return to that this week as well. By the way, I do have two additional copies of our Harmony of the Gospel up here, if folks don't have that yet, to help kind of keep track of where we are in our study um, you don't, won't necessarily need it this morning, but it will be helpful for you as we proceed through this particular series. Last week we saw under point one that Zacharias and Elizabeth obeyed the Lord's instructions by naming their son John. Verses 57 through 80. Keep in mind, of course, that obedience is not always a given. That uh, obedience is is uh, a volitional test every step of the way. And simply because Zacharias has been under divine discipline for these last nine months... Um, does not mean that he's just automatically going to be humbled and he's going to start making right decisions. Um, We'd like to think so, uh, but that's the nature of divine discipline. It's geared towards pointing us in that direction, but nevertheless, it becomes a volitional matter and a matter for perhaps human stubbornness. How long do you want to continue uh, being disciplined? In other words, how much punishment do you feel like taking? and uh, some of us maybe are bigger knuckleheads than others in terms of wanting to go ahead and and uh take more of a of a beating in the in the divine discipline sense. Zechariah though determined that 9 months was enough that uh he was ready to actually start serving the Lord and 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 also by the way just because the divine discipline lasted 9 months doesn't mean that his rebellion lasted 9 months. It's quite possible that he was humbled and repented and confessed and was restored to fellowship that very day when he was struck speechless. It's just that the ongoing effects continued on after he was restored to fellowship. And that, by the way, is quite quite common. And uh, matters that we will deal with in future studies on divine discipline, for example. David confessed of his sin and repented of his adultery. And yet, for the rest of his life, he faced consequences of of that divine discipline. So I hope hope we're clear on that. Again, point one, Zacharias and Elizabeth obeyed the Lord's instructions by naming their son John. We showed you the the significance between the vocabulary of Zacharias and the vocabulary of Ioannis, that whereas Zacharias highlights uh, Jehovah and his remembering, the remembering of the covenant, the remembering of the covenant, which they've been clinging to for centuries. In fact, 400 years since the last writing prophet, 400 years since Malachi have gone by. And the Jewish people uh, continue to hold on to the promise that Jehovah remembers, Jehovah remembers. And living under the concepts of imminency that we live under, obviously their sense of imminency was anticipating the first advent of Jesus Christ, anticipating the coming Messiah. And they were waiting day by day, waiting in a concept of imminency, waiting for the Christ to appear much as you and I are waiting under concepts of imminency for the rapture of the church, for the Lord himself to descend with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. So it's quite interesting. There are so many parallels between the Lord's generation and our generation uh, that I think more and more of those will strike us as we proceed through the life of Christ study because um, we have the same tendency today. It's been 2,000 years since Christ. And well, how long is this going to be? You know, imminency, I mean, Paul was expecting it in his generation and died without seeing it, and then we expect it, and well, how long is it going to be? And, and obviously the, the admonition is given in Second Peter 3 that we can't count the Lord as being slow, as some count slowness, but we should rather identify him with his patience and understand that each day he delays is a grace provision for us to seek and to save the lost, to proclaim the gospel message in this lost and dying world. So there's significant concepts between Jehovah remembers or Yahweh remembers in the definition of Zacharias and then the definition behind the name for John, the name Ioannis, uh coming from the, uh, the Hebrew Yohanan, that the Lord has supplied grace. The Lord has supra- supplied grace. All right. I'm going to proceed from here then. It did strike me, though, in between last week and this week that yeah, um, it's been a while since we've made any kind of comment upon the Tetragrammaton, upon the, the name Yahweh or the name Jehovah and the the uh, name for the Lord there, that uh, such a thing may need to be expanded upon at a point of time. So I'm not going to do that this morning unless we have time at the end of this hour for questions and, and there's folks who want to uh, explore that a little bit. Otherwise, we'll just let that go for this morning and maybe... Maybe bring it up again this evening if someone has a question on that regard as well. Moving on now, point C, the conclusion of divine discipline afforded Zechariah the opportunity to praise God. And we observe that in verse 64. At once his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. And the conclusion of divine discipline afforded him this opportunity. Prior to this, of course, any praise he might have had for the Lord would have been silent. Any prayer he might have had to the Lord would have been between him and the Lord in the privacy of his own silent prayers. But the moment that his mouth was open and he was permitted to speak verbally, permitted to speak externally, uh, he has the opportunity to do so. And we, um, I think, sometimes don't totally uh, appreciate the nature of the spoken word in terms of our praise, in terms of our witness, in terms of our worship, in terms of... Um, the uh the role that the spoken word has and the power that the spoken word has in God's design and God's plan that um, in terms of of course obviously silent prayer I can pray the lord knows my heart he knows my thinking he knows my thoughts uh in silent prayer he hears he answers and so forth I don't have to verbalize or audibleize a prayer in order to be heard but I can audibleize a prayer if I so choose and what's what purpose would that serve? Well, it means that other believers praying with me can uh, give their mental assent along with each verbal prayer that's spoken, such as we have in our, in our prayer meetings. Uh, husband and wife that pray together need to do so audibly, unless they happen to be mind readers or something. <laughs> All right. Um, but others benefit to actual audible words being spoken. God obviously didn't need to speak. With a thought, with with an expression of will, he could have created the universe, and yet he chose to do so through speaking. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke, and the universe sprang into being. The power of a spoken word, even in terms of face-to-face teaching in a Bible class, a live Bible class assembly. Now, You can learn the Bible through the written word. You can learn by reading. You can learn by listening to a tape or hearing a guy on the radio. Don't get me wrong. You can get content that way. But the actual power of the Holy Spirit as a audible message is being delivered. It says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, actively speaks to the local churches. So at some point of time in future studies, this is an area for us to explore the nature of audible communication as a gift of what the Father has allowed the human race to express. Now this is not unusual, Zacharias is not alone in this. Others, as we took the time to examine, David responded to his divine discipline with worship. And we observed that from back in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 20. That uh, after the infant had died, and he had the opportunity to get up and take food and wash himself and go into the into the uh, location there to worship, and he did so in Second Samuel 12. Nebuchadnezzar was a second example in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 30 through 37. After his mind returned to him and he had the rational capacity to worship once again, he did so. And in reality, all believers can respond in such a way, according to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11. And that's where we ran out of time, and that was the last scripture reference I gave you. But it applies to every born-again believer, and we can see this in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 7 says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without, and the answer to that rhetorical question, by the way, is the son that is not loved by his father. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, that's the son that uh, does not have a father who loves him. Is the, fa- is the son who has a father that does not discipline him. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons and uh, that's that's a harsh message that's a strong message maybe it's lost a bit on us today given our generation and our culture and the sad state of society in which illegitimacy is not even looked upon with any raised eyebrows anymore but this is a powerful statement clearly on an eternal scale if i if my eternal standing and and right to be in heaven for all eternity as opposed to hell for all eternity, or like a fire for all eternity, then my sonship is a very serious issue. <laughs> and I want it to be very clear that I have legitimate sonship, that God the Father is my heavenly Father, I'm a true brother of Jesus Christ, and I don't want there to be any, any question about that or, or that to be brought into any uh, disrepute at all. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of Spirits and live. For they, that's the human fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. I love that phrase. (laughs) Especially, we got some young parents here this this morning and in our uh, church assembly, and I think about Jim and Deanne, of course, they just had their baby, and there's others, young parents. And, and, you know, a lot of times when you're raising these children and you're just kind of winging it, you know, You're, you're disciplining as seems best to you. And, we're not omniscient and we're not, we can't see everything and we just discipline as it seems best. We don't want to discipline too hard and then crush the spirit, but we don't want to discipline too soft where they just laugh and say, oh, well, you know, no big deal and blow it off and don't learn anything, okay? I forget exactly what age it was, but there came a point in time when my mother's spankings no longer hurt. And in actuality, I, found, I figured that out at some point in time before she figured it out. And for a length of time, I don't remember now how long exactly that was, but there was a span when I didn't really want her to know. You know, so I could keep. She figured it didn't take that long, and she figured out that the spankings just weren't having any That was it. She was done. It was now in my dad's department, 100% full time, and those did hurt. <laughs> All right? So. Parents, you know, we we discipline, is it too much, is it too little and we just bow our knees before the Father and say, Father, uh, these children are yours, they're your grace gifts. Uh, Give us the wisdom to to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and we just do our best and say, okay, Lord, that's yours. As unto the Lord, we do what we do. But now on the other hand, whereas human beings may be uh, finite and may be uh, limited in, in, in what they're doing, God the Father is not. And so his discipline is perfect. And so the second part of verse 10, but he disciplines us for our good. Remember, all things are working together for the good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And that includes the discipline. All the discipline he puts us under is a part of working all things together for the good. And he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. That's for the moment, during the period of time in which you're undergoing the discipline, it's not a lot of fun. But sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, this is uh, paiduo This is where in our First Corinthians series we pointed out that if you don't manthano, if you don't learn the easy way, you're going to Paiduo, You're going to learn the hard way, <laughs> through discipline. It's much better to learn in fellowship. It's much better to learn the word of God in Bible class. It's much better to learn what pleases him through faithfulness and obedience. But failing that, he will continue to instruct us in his character just through the application of piduo instruction, divine discipline. Those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of of Righteousness. There's a benefit to divine discipline once we've come through it and learned the lesson. So all believers can respond in such a way. We can be like a David. We can be like a, a Nebuchadnezzar. We can be like a, a Zacharias from Luke chapter one that, uh, well, it wasn't fun, but it was necessary. And we could even confess like David did that it, it wasn't even everything we deserved that he didn't even discipline us according to what we deserve, because even there is grace and, mi- and mercy and limitations upon how he applies the rod. Now, point two, Zechariah, this is main point two now. They've given you main point one with an A, B, and a C, and then under C there was sub-sub points of one, two, three. Now we're back out to the main point of main point two. Zacharias becomes the final member of his immediate family to receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, his son was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in the womb. Elizabeth became filled with the Holy Spirit when Mary visited her and the sound of her voice greeted her ears and the the spirit-filled baby jumped in her womb and then Elizabeth received the Holy Spirit. Now finally, Zacharias becomes the final member of his immediate family to receive the Holy Spirit and he sings a prophetic song of praise to the Lord. And the content of that song is verses 67 through 79. Zacharias becomes the final member of his immediate family to receive the Holy Spirit and sings a prophetic song of praise to the Lord. A few weeks back, we actually gave some thoughts with respect to the Seemingly backwards order of the Spirit being given in this sense. In terms, we're accustomed to delegated authority, we're accustomed to a chain of command responsibility that the Father's the head of the home, and so we would expect that it would be the Father who would receive the Holy Spirit, and then the Mother, and then the child. Well, it's, it's exactly backwards in this case. The, the, the breathos in the womb becomes Spirit filled. And then the Mother, and then the Father. And we gave some thoughts on that a few weeks back in terms of showing a pattern for church growth or a pattern for individual Christian growth from babyhood to adolescence to maturity and the things that we discussed there. Let's look at this song. His father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, now much of this is reflective. Much of this is grounded like Mary's song was grounded in Old Testament truth. And we'll Show that for you, but it takes what has previously been revealed, applies it to the present and on into the future, and that's what turns it into a prophetic message. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old salvation from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's the prophetic song. The final verse of the chapter The child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. and He lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. All right, this is Zacharias' song. It begins with, Blessed be the Lord. And we'll give you this under under sub-point A. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. This was the praise offered up by the son of David when he took his father's throne. 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 48. Significant language is employed in this song. Because what we have here at the dawn of the birth of the Christ is the son of David. Okay? The greater son of David. And the words that are sung here by Zacharias are the words of the son of David. In this case, the literal son of David, Solomon. As he took his father's throne. So we have Luke one sixty eight compared back with 1 Kings 1.48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. This was the praise offered up by the Son of David when he took his father's throne. And this is the phrase that Zacharias chooses to begin his song of praise. Now I say Zacharias, I also want to recognize under inspiration of Scripture. That he, this is God the Holy Spirit composing Scripture. No prophet spoke of his own will, but... Uh, the Holy men of old that spoke as the Holy Spirit moved as he gave them utterance, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, if you want to hold your place there, go ahead, leave your finger or bookmark or ribbon or whatever you might have, bubble gum wrapper, whatever you might have, and go back to First Kings chapter one. I used to always say, "Leave your finger or ribbon or bookmark, but then uh, and I used that for years and years, and then I went up to Washington state and heard uh, Pastor Ron uh, Breckel. And uh, he offered a, a finger, a ribbon, a bookmark, or a bubblegum wrapper. And I thought, wow, there's a good option. I hadn't even considered a bubblegum wrapper. So learning from my older pastor examples, I thought, okay, I'll start incorporating the, the bubblegum wrapper option. Whatever you want to keep at Luke chapter 1, keep there. Some of you may be fast enough flippers that you don't even worry about it. You just turn to 1 Kings, and when it's time to go back, you're going to go back. That's fine. 1 Kings chapter 1. It's a long chapter. We're headed for verse 48. In the context, we have Solomon anointed king. In verse 38 and following, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Now, this, by the way, is after his brother had himself crowned and tried to steal the, uh, the throne before Solomon could take the, uh, the throne that had been promised. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. All the people went up after him, and all the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth shook with their noise. And then in verses 41 of following, I I chuckle when I read because Adonijah hears what's going on, and he knows that he's in trouble. (laughs) He you knows that his, his little scheme to try to make himself the next king is, is not going to work. And, and, uh, and he's got problems here. Especially when all of his friends start slinking out and disappearing on him. The, uh, down on verse 48. The king has also said thus. And this is um, the word that is coming to Adonijah. And uh, it's being explained to him. Jonathan is doing the explaining in verse 43. He replies to Adonijah, No, our Lord King David has made Solomon king. Uh, In verse 44, The king has also sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. Very important. I mean, the imagery there is startling, especially when you stop and think about the humility of our Savior when he entered into Jerusalem humble and walking on a colt, or riding on a colt. Then uh, Zadok the priest and Nathan, I'm reading from verse 45, Zadok the priest Nathan the prophet have anointed him king in Gihon and they have come up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise which you have heard. Besides, verse 46, Solomon has even taken his seat on the throne of the kingdom. That's far beyond anything Adonijah even dared to do yet because David uh, was still physically breathing, still alive, even if bedridden. Moreover, Verse 47, the king's servants came to bless our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon better than your name and his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed, recognizing that the king himself has sanctioned and blessed. David himself has given approval of Solomon now being the king. In fact, David is now subject to Solomon the king by virtue of his uh, acquiescing and by virtue of his surrendering, submitting to Solomon's kingship. The king has also said thus, and notice these are the words of David. The king has also said thus, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted one to sit on my throne today while my own eyes still see it. So these are his words. The praise offered up, and so the point A is actually miswritten. The praise offered up by David himself when his son took up his throne. Because that's David speaking in verse 48. David speaking in verse 48. The king has also said thus, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted one to sit on my throne today while my own eyes see it. Remember, the, the promise made to David is unconditional. Like the Abrahamic covenant, It's an unconditional covenant. God promised David that his son would sit on the throne, that he would have a son sit on the throne forever. And he fulfilled it literally in Solomon. He fulfilled it ultimately and eternally in Jesus Christ. And at the time he was making that promise, David didn't know anything about Bathsheba. David had no idea about an upcoming uh, failure and adultery, an upcoming murder, an upcoming divine discipline. None of that was even known. And yet God takes the son of David and Bathsheba, names him peace. It's just a powerful message of grace all the way around, every, any particular way that you want to look at it. The Lord is the God of Israel. Subpoint one. They are the words of David himself in at least two Davidic hymns. Psalm 41.13 and Psalm 72, verses 18 and 19. They are the words of David himself, Psalm thirty-one thirteen, Psalm seventy two, verses eighteen and nineteen. So when David says these words on his deathbed, he's in fact quoting himself. <laughs> he's in fact reciting hymns that he had previously composed, hymns recorded for us in the Psalms. Psalm forty one thirteen. I can imagine it would be difficult if you are such a prolific author that later in life and you're looking for a a good quote (laughs) and the best ones you can find are your own (laughs) from previous writings, say. If, in fact, your writings are so voluminous and so forth, at least 75 of the 150 Psalms are David's. So... You know, there was no, and, and a number of the other psalms were Asaphs or Solomon's or others that that uh, followed after David. So it's not exactly fair to say, well, half the psalms were David. By the time of his death, significantly, uh, a significantly greater percentage, much more than half, were, were Davidic psalms, if not virtually all of them. Psalm ninety was Moses, but, but. Uh, the psalms that were all written after him were in all likelihood written after his death and, and patterned after the psalms that he wrote during his life. So uh, anyway, I'm not sure how that works. If, if people today have that problem, or we have such literature available today. You can find quotations from anywhere. But um, Anyway, so when David was pronouncing blessings on his deathbed there for the son of... Um, for his son taking the throne, it was quite natural to say, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, as is a common phrase that he had employed previously in his Messianic Psalms. All right, in Psalm forty-one thirteen, 13, it's uh, a Psalm of David. It's an uh, expression of how faithful the Lord has been, how blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. It goes on. It's a 13-verse Psalm. And... Uh, Without read, reading the entire thing, it's focused upon the graciousness of the Lord. You have graciousness in verse 4. And in spite of all the conflict, in spite of enemies, in spite of hatred, and all of that, David is clinging to grace and graciousness. We have it mentioned again in verse 11. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. Do we, do we have a confidence enough in our prayer life that we can tell God what to do? Do we have a boldness in our prayer life that we can give an order? These phrases are in an imperative, uh, an imperative mood. Ordering God what to do. Giving a command. He's not asking for grace. He's ordering Jehovah, the Lord, He's ordering Him to be gracious. He's ordering Him to raise me up. Similar to the, the prayer in Psalm 22 where He says, Be not far from me for trouble is near. Ordering the Lord front and center. You be right here. Do we have that kind of confidence? And um, things we've mentioned in times past in terms of prayer. We taught the doctrine of prayer, it seems, years ago. And I guess it was years ago. <laughs> what year was that? We First Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. Okay, it's been a while. We need, I guess we're overdue for the doctrine of prayer. We need an intimacy, a familiarity where we can order God what to do. And we're not ordering Him in our own authority, I can't order him to do anything in in my authority, in my name, or based on what I want done. But consistent with God's word, that very word which he has magnified in accordance with his own name, that's authority right there. And so a prayer that's offered up consistent with the word of God has the authority of the word of God behind it. Moses offered such prayers. When the Lord said, stand back, I'm going to blast these people and start over with you. Moses says, Lord, you can't do that. Moses told God what he couldn't, could not do. He said, you can't do that. Because you've made promises to Abraham. And he was able to take a prayer, grounded in the word of God, and, and tell the Lord what he couldn't do. And he was right. Here we have the order as well. We find the same thing. Jesus Christ offering prayers with the imperative mood, telling the Father what to do based upon what the Father has said he would do in the word of God. So we have graciousness, graciousness, graciousness all throughout this psalm. We have uh, in verse 4, be gracious to me. Uh, The next paragraph starts the same way in verse 10, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me. And um, as it concludes in verse 12 and 13 here, verse 12, As for me, you uphold me in my integrity, you set me in your presence forever. David's not just thinking temporally, He's not just thinking in time. He's not just thinking about one test on one bad day at one, you know, one moment. Okay? We all have bad days. We all have moments. And yes, we need to go get, get provision for that moment. But let's stop just thinking in the moment. Let's start thinking eternally. God sustains me. He's going to sustain me in this test because he's actually sustaining me eternally. And this moment is included in that. As David says here, you uphold me in my integrity and you set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. In fact, this is the conclusion to book one, the five books of the Psalms. Likewise, in Psalm 72, conclusion to this book of Psalms. Quite remarkable. This is a psalm of Solomon's. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. I Try to imagine being Solomon for a moment and following after a king like David. The only man in Scripture called a man after God's own heart. A man that was promised an eternal son to sit on the throne. And you're going to follow him? <laughs> no wonder he asked for wisdom. So give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with the justice. And so he's composing this psalm in anticipation of a reign at the beginning of that reign. And you'll notice as it comes to an end in verse 18, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. I think Through the Bible Study Guide, I pointed out Psalm 72 gives Solomon in the introduction, it gives David in the ending, and I think this was probably co-written between the two of them at this event, at David's deathbed, at the transition from... The, uh, at the anointing of Solomon as king and the transition of the kingdom there. But blessed be. Blessed be. Now, uh, this whole concept of blessed be, if, if I've already boggled your mind this morning in terms of ordering God around <laughs> and telling God what to do, okay, then I'm going to boggle you a little bit more and give you things to think about in the coming week blessings, or pronouncement of blessedness, where do blessings come from? They come from God. All blessings, in fact, come from God. And so a pronouncement of blessing, or a pronouncement of blessedness, I can understand if God is calling me blessed, if God has, in fact, poured out blessings upon me, and pronounced me as the recipient of blessings, and therefore has ascribed a a state of blessedness to me, I can understand that. Because that's coming from God. But on the human realm, how do I ascribe blessings to him? How do I do that? How do I supply a blessing to the infinite, eternal God of the universe who has no need of anything, who's content in all that he has and possesses all? How do I... Give him anything in terms of ascribing blessedness or in terms of offering praise. See, this itself becomes an expression of worship. Point two, sub point two now. Ascribing blessedness to God, and this is eulogetos blessedness. Ascribing eulogetos blessedness to God is a mature recognition of his matchless worth. Ascribing Eulogetos' blessedness to God And I'll spell that out for you here in a moment. Ascribing Eulogetos' blessedness to God is a mature recognition of His matchless worth. Eulogetos E-U-L-O-G-E-T-O-S Eulogetos And I did not write down the Strong's number for the Eulogetos, so I'll have to look that up later. Ascribing Eulogetos' blessedness to God is a mature recognition of his matchless worth. E-U-L-O-G-E-T-O-S. Logos is a word. L-O-G-O-S is a word. And we have the Logos root right here with L-O-G. The E-U prefix is attached to a lot of words. That means good or well. If it's an adverb, it would mean well, something done well. Uh, the gospel is a euangelia. It's the evangel, it's the good message, the good news. It's the euangelia. An evangelist is a euangelistis. So many of the compound verbs and words that we have that start with the EU prefix. But this is eu lagatas, A word of blessing, a good word. A pronouncement of blessedness. Now, just simply because we are stating it, does not make it so. (laughs) Because we don't have the sovereignty to have such declarative statements produce that reality. Are you following me there? God can speak and it happens. Because he's sovereign. <laughs> God says, let there be light, and there is light. He has the opportunity to say, let so-and-so be blessed. And they are blessed. Because in his sovereignty, he is producing the blessings. He is, he is uh, assigning the blessing. He is uh, providing the blessing. Now, you and I don't produce. We don't determine I can't just say, let there be and have it appear out of nothing. All right? (laughs) You know, let there be season tickets. They're not there. Oh, my goodness. Okay. But rather than causing, this is what I'm trying to distinguish, God causes the blessedness. Rather than causing, when we are pronouncing blessings, we are recognizing the blessings. A mature recognition of his matchless worth. We're not bringing his worth into existence, but we are recognizing it for what it is. And the older we get in the Lord, the better we are, the more effective we are at identifying his blessings for what they are. A lot of times in immaturity, we cannot recognize his blessings because we don't see them. In immaturity, not only do we fail to recognize his blessings, but we Grumble about what we think are, or what we don't even understand, are blessings at all. And so we grumble about it, and then we grow up and we see things with a little bit more divine viewpoint. And we stop and recognize, oh, you know what? That that was a blessing after all. What do you know? At first it didn't seem to be, but it sure worked together for good. So how about that? And so we grow in a maturity to have a greater capacity to identify the blessings of God for who He is. When Zechariah here says, blessed be, in uh, most of the translations as you read, the, the, the be is italicized because it's, it's inferred, it's implied, it's understood as his possession. He is blessed. He is worthy of such praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Zecharias was able to recognize his worth and humble himself before that worth and praise God for that worth. And this then becomes a gift. Any expression of praise that we offer him is a gift. Back to him. He's given us tongues. He's given us mouths. He's given us uh, verbal capacity, the, the potential to speak. And we can use verbal speech for horrible things. We can undertake all kinds of sins of the tongue. We can hurt people. We can do terrible things with verbal speech. Human capacity for horror horror, is there also just through verbal speech. But by giving us that volition, by giving us that capacity, like the book of James says, to either sin with the tongue or praise him, We can do so volitionally, and that then becomes a gift that has value. Do I have to praise Him, or do I want to praise Him? Much of the, uh, much of the Old Testament, in the law, in the in the um, the 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 sacrifices, the festivals, the offerings, everything was so detailed, and we get lost in those details. And I confess that because because I I like to break down vocabulary. I like to get in all the details. I can spend five years looking at a tree and forget all about the forest. All right, we, we get so caught up in all of the have-tos of Mosaic Law. They have to observe Pentecost. They have to observe Passover. They have to observe the Feast of Trumpets. They have to offer a morning offering. They have to offer an evening offering. They have to offer sin offerings. They have so many have-tos we forget about the want-tos. The free will offerings, the votive offerings, the, the offerings that a guy brings not because he has to, but just because he wants to, because he loves the Lord and he wants to do it. And in the church, we have very few have to's. We have a whole lot of want to's. We don't have a, a have to, uh, a, a, a tithe, a minimum, you know, a 10% that we have to give. That, that. We have want to's. What do you want to give? See, under grace, it's all about want tos. And what do you want to give? And, and in part, I think, and we, we dealt with this in the Life of David study, the whole, the whole uh, system of, of the choir and the hymns and the psalms that David wrote and all of the music and all of the things, none of that's in Leviticus. <laughs> Where did David come up with all these things? One, well, in Leviticus with the offerings and the blood and the sprinkled. Now, that was all the have-tos, but the idea of hymns of praise and songs and choirs and music and trumpets and cymbals and lyres and all of that, that was just David in wanting to, and saying the Lord is worthy to be praised. Great is the Lord and greatly is he to be praised. And and this whole idea of worship being something that volitionally a creature wants to do. Think about... um, You've you've worked hard and you've slaved over a hot stove all day and you've fixed a meal and you've you've put it out on the table and it's presented in all its wonder and its flavor and the the hot things are hot and the cold things are cold and you managed to get that all to work out just right and your husband came home and, and you're sitting down. All right? And a child, in their own volition, in their own appreciation, in their own capacity... On their own free will, says, Thank you, Mom. That means something. As opposed to the child that has to say it because his father says, Thank your mother for the dinner. <laughs> and they kind of grumble and say, You know, maybe it's something they don't like. <laughs> and they were just complaining about the taste of it. And you say, Don't complain. Thank your mother for the dinner. So they grit their teeth and they say, Thank you, Mom, for the dinner. And they choke down a bite of whatever it is, okay? I'm illustrating, but you're following what I'm saying here. If it's coerced, eh, that doesn't touch your heart the same way, does it? (laughs) You know? If it's coerced and they don't really mean it, does that have a value at all? But if it's not coerced, if it's free will, if it's volitional, if they didn't have to, but they wanted to, because it was sparked by an appreciation in their soul, then it has value. It has real, legitimate value. And that's what all worship is about in terms of what we can offer to the God who has everything, the complete, eternal, limitless God who has no needs. When you stop and consider it, He does not need to be worshipped because He's inherently worthy of worship. And yet, when the worship does come volitionally by his children who love him, it has a value. And ultimately, that's why he created us as volitional creatures. So, ascribing this blessedness to God, as Zechariah does here when he says, Blessed be, and we can identify God himself as being blessed and being the source of all blessings, it is a recognition of his worth in fact, his matchless worth. We've got other places. In fact, I picked up three New Testament places where we have the ascribing to God of blessedness, including Second Corinthians, Ephesians, and 1 Peter. Second Corinthians 1.3. And when Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Paul doesn't make God blessed because he said so. God isn't any more blessed or blessed because Paul said he is. He's not causing it. He is identifying it and expressing it, reflecting it in his praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Paul has recognized the worth for that blessedness or blessing in terms of he is the father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, Paul looked around at at the father's system of comfort and recognized that that the father was, was extending comfort to him and to other believers so that they could then take that comfort in turn and extend it to others. And Paul said, you know something, that's a pretty good system. That really works. In fact, there's no area of the Christian way of life where that doesn't work. Because it works every time it's tried. As it says here, we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. It doesn't matter what they're going through. And it might be something that I've not gone through myself, but I can still extend comfort because the comfort I've been provided is infinite. And the comfort I can then extend is infinite. I have divine resources that aren't limited to my own, my own ability, my own background, even my own understanding. Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. And so Paul recognizes the provision, and that's just beyond anything human beings deserve, And he recognized that it was something in God himself that was worthy to be praised. And as a response to that, he pronounces blessings upon God himself. Blessed be. Again, the word be is italicized because it's simply provided in order for us to try to comprehend in the English language what's happening here. Paul is not giving a state of blessedness to God, but he is identifying that state of blessedness and praising him for it. For designing what a wonderful comfort system that he's given us. All right, over in Ephesians, likewise, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not blessed because Paul says so. He's blessed because he is. And Paul has recognized that and wants to glorify that and and praise God for that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Look at what he's done for us. Everything. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And as a response to that, as an expression of thankfulness and appreciation for that, Paul is ascribing blessedness to God himself. Do we in our prayers ever tell God how wonderful he is? Do we take the time for the adoration? Or are we too quick to the gimme, 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 gimme? (laughs) All right.
1: Don't get me wrong.
0: There are times and circumstances where the appropriate prayer is simply, Lord, help. All right? Peter's out there on the water. He's starting to sink. He says, Lord, help. The boat's crashing down and the disciples say, Lord, save us. All right. In those crisis moments, then the, 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 the very short, panicky crisis prayers, those are okay. <laughs> you don't have time for a three-hour prayer meeting at those occasions. But then, on the other hand, when it's not the, the crisis, urgent, spur-of-the-moment thing, when you do have time, do you take the time? Do I take the time in terms of adoration to tell him what he is worthy of, to tell him what he has done? Just read through the Psalms and realize how many of them are simply telling the Lord himself about his glory, about his worth, about his majesty. To tell him that he is indeed blessed for what he has done. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's not bragging about being holy and blameless, it's celebrating how he chose us. Divine sovereignty, election at work prior to anything else happening. That's before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Again, it's a statement of what he has done. It's an expression of how glorious he is. According to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved one. And I hope your beloved there is capitalized because that's a term for Jesus Christ. So it's a statement of blessing. We have Peter's use of it in First 1 Peter 1, 1.3. It's not just Zacharias. It's not just Paul. We have a, a Peter example of a believer who is declaring God himself to be blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's declaration of praise to God himself, phrased here, blessed be, blessed be. Now, as we return to Luke chapter 1, Zacharias has reasons for pronouncing him blessed. And he expresses him blessed for. For. Again, returning back to Luke chapter 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For. And now comes... The explanation. So under point B now, we have the conjunction hoti, h o t i, hoti. Introduces three actions that Zacharias praises God for doing. He says for it's the explanatory conjunction hoti, h o t i, number thirty-seven fifty-four. You have an omicron tau iota. Omicron, Tau, Iota. O-T-I. The Omicron has the rough breathing accent on the front of it, on the top of it right there. So we know it's a rough breathing. It's a Hati instead of a smooth breathing. It's not ati, it's Hati. All because of that little accent on top of the Omicron. Hati. Number 3754. So when we transliterate it, we would... Provide the H in there and transliterate H-O-T-I. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Hati. And the conjunction Hati is now introducing the reasons why. Not because Zechariah says so. <laughs> Alright. But because. And then there are three verbs that are employed. And this is where we'll pick it up next week. Uh, he has visited us. There's a verb there we're going to look at, and that's not just a social visit, all right? (laughs) That's not just dropping in for coffee and chit-chatting, talking about the Lakers or anything. We'll talk about what a visit's all about. The second verb that is fulfilled, that is uh, the compliments, the Hati, is accomplished redemption. And we'll deal with what redemption's all about. Probably a pretty good idea to study redemption if you're going to do a Life of Christ study. (laughs) so we'll look at that and then there's a um, third verb in verse 69 raised up raised up and uh, we'll look at that one also raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant particularly because uh, the manger hasn't happened yet manger hasn't happened yet the baptizer was just born. And we know that Elizabeth was pregnant at least six months prior to Mary, if not more. We don't specifically know when the uh, the, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and the power of the Most High came upon her and when her, uh, when her womb was quickened and when all that happened. Gabriel said it was going to happen. She ran, got on her mule and ran down there and visited Elizabeth for three months. And Elizabeth rejoiced that the mother of her Lord should come. And um, But we don't know if the conception occurred there while she was visiting Zacharias and Elizabeth or if it occurred shortly after she returned to Nazareth or when it might have occurred. All right? So at a minimum, the baptizer is six months older than the Christ and possibly nine months, maybe a year, maybe two years. We don't know. All right? Yet when... The baptizer is born and Zacharias has his voice loosed and he starts to sing this song. Remember, he's speaking prophetically. He says, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. That's not the baptizer. The baptizer's a Levite. He's not in the house of David. He's referring to the Christ. Referring to the birth of the humanity of Jesus Christ. So, in any event, that... Maybe a clue, and a clue that I look at and say, okay, well, she must have conceived there and the pregnancy is now ongoing And uh, because the horn itself has been already raised up. We will deal with that. The purpose for raising up the uh, horn, you will notice. Um, Just real quickly, I'm a little over, but he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. The setting for that is in the house of David, his servant. The context for that is, or the background for that is, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. All right? The setting is in the house of David. The background is previously revealed prophetic promises, which takes us down through verse 70, verse 71, 72, indicating purpose. 73, more purpose in verse 74. 74 concluding in verse 75. Then he turns his attention to his own son in verse 76. And you, child, reference to the breathos, to the spirit-filled breathos that has just exited the womb, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Quite extraordinary for the most part, the Jews were looking for a political Messiah to come and conquer Rome and throw off the Gentiles and rule the world. Zechariah says that uh, the ministry of the Baptist is to talk about sin, talk about salvation, talk about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin in the world. And that's exactly what the Baptist does when, uh, when the Christ appears. So anyway, we will deal with these things and uh, come back to this subject One week from the day, Lord willing. This is, yes, the 2nd, the 9th, the 16th. We're having classes all this month. Uh, Bob has a summer camp 13th through the uh, 18th that I'm participating in. But I'm coming back that Tuesday night. So we'll have our class here that Wednesday morning. All right, shall we close with prayer? Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We thank you for the example of Zecharias, of, of uh, Paul, of Peter, of David, recognizing the glory that you possess, the inherent glory and worthiness, and the opportunity we have volitionally to, to ascribe the, the blessedness to you, to praise you for who you are and what you are, to identify what you've done, to glorify your name accordingly, to celebrate your majesty, And Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding that we might see these truths and how they relate to our own life. Give us a greater maturity, a greater capacity, a greater potential to bless your name. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.